It is so wonderful to see you guys here this morning. Uh, what a beautiful morning we've already had so far. And um, I'm believing that it will carry through our time of teaching and our time of baptism um, this morning. If I've never met you before, my name is Spencer. I happen to have the honor and privilege of being a pastor here at Emmaus, and it's a, it's a delight to have you with us. If you're visiting, glad you're here. Um, I hope that you encounter the living, tangible presence of God this morning. It is certainly a special day of celebration as we get the chance as a community, as a collective body, to stand with and stand beside brothers and sisters entering into the sacred waters of baptism. Uh, Historically, if you did not know, within the tradition of the church, the Lenten season, the season we find ourselves in now preceding Easter, has been a season of preparation for individual followers of the way of Jesus to prepare themselves for baptism on Easter Sunday morning. In the tradition of the church, baptism would happen on Easter Sunday morning. And it was a preparation phase. And Lent was that preparation phase. Only to enter into the waters on Easter Sunday and come out in resurrection life. The subversion of death into eternal life. Praise God. And what we will collectively participate in as the body of Christ at the end of our gathering is nothing for us to take lightly. Unfortunately, I think many of us who have grown up in the Western church have denigrated or, no pun intended, watered down our understanding of the sacred act of baptism. It is not something to be taken lightly. In the first couple centuries of the church, Lent wasn't just a preparation phase. There was actually a three-year preparation phase before you entered into the waters of baptism. Many of us, if we're honest, haven't taken the time to count the cost of what it means to follow the way of Jesus. What it is we actually are leaving behind. And so I want us to consider the brevity, the weight and the mystery of baptism. It is not just a sentimental act or symbolic or an ordinance or just a ritual, but there is a mysterious instituted grace that is given and commanded by our Lord Jesus with baptism as a mark of his path of new life, of adoption into the family of God, and repentance from our old way of life to the new way of life in Christ Jesus, as well as a collision where heaven and earth become one, where heaven and earth actually overlap. It is in this sacred act that heaven and earth become one. Just as in the Eucharist and in communion, heaven and earth mysteriously overlap. Now, I know we struggle in our naturalistic world to understand the mystery of the supernatural, but I am pleading a prophesying faith in this place as a gift from God above who is generous, that we would believe 
that there is something happening in the supernatural realm as it collides with the natural realm and the ordinary medium of water. It is also in this moment where our brothers and sisters who will enter in will be filled afresh and empowered by the animating Holy Spirit. It is not about mere acceptance into the heart, which is language that's found nowhere in the New Testament. But instead, it is an act of devoting one's whole self, whole self, not just the inner person. There's a reason your whole body goes underwater. You're committing and devoting your whole self to the person, teaching, and way of Jesus of Nazareth. Also, as a commitment to Jesus, since he is the head of his church and the head of his body, it is simultaneously a devotion to his church and to his body as well. So we will align together with them, these six individuals, at the end to also commit ourselves as a community, as members of one body, fingers, toes, elbows, ears, all of us, committing ourselves to journey with these individuals as we all seek to become more and more like Jesus of Nazareth, spurring on one another to love and good deeds, as it says in Hebrews chapter 10. Because, as we will see in today's text, baptism isn't a singular moment of trust but a gateway into a life requiring increasing trust. And I hope this morning that with their profession of faith, this embodied act actually provokes you to a deeper intimacy and increased trust in Jesus as well. There is something about the proclamation and witness of a brother or sister and what they're doing that spurs us on to a deeper intimacy, to a deeper curiosity. And you may come in today a skeptic or a not a follower of the way of Jesus. That's okay. I'm glad you're here. But I hope it at least sparks curiosity. What is happening? This is weird, man. It's weird. It is. But the fact that we believe there is power in the cross is also pretty foolish and weird as well. And... God above will shame the wisdom of the wise. We preach Christ and Christ crucified. We don't just look for signs and for wisdom from philosophers of old. We preach Christ and Christ crucified, that in death there is resurrection life. It's the only gateway into eternal flourishing. So let us go to the text. We've been in this series called On the Way. I thought uh, Dr. D did a phenomenal job last week proclaiming, prophesying, preaching, this, this teaching, looking at Jesus' baptism. And it's a, it's a story that I had a hard time walking out of, I'll be honest. There was something about it that I kind of wanted to be able to sit in for a bit. So we're going to be in Matthew 4, but just the first couple of verses. And over the next couple of weeks, we're actually going to sit in the wilderness for a little bit longer. Because I tried to unpack all that I wanted to in one sermon, and uh, I was like, that's not going to happen. We're going to be here for hours, and we got to do baptism. So we're going to kind of draw it out over a couple of weeks, if that's okay with you guys. Um, So Matthew chapter 4, 
is where we, where we will be this morning. And we're just going to read the first three verses. If you would go there in the scriptures. And actually, you know what? If you're able, can you stand this morning for the reading of scripture? I love to hear those pews creak and crack. Hear the word of the Lord. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, that's a key number in the story of God, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. More creaking and cracking. Beautiful. But they were free. Praise God. Does somebody ever give you something for free and you're like, actually, I don't even want it. It's that bad. I don't feel that way about these pews. I, they warm my heart. Uh, they really do. They're stained. They're crickety. You know, they've got little monuments on each of them. Have you noticed that? All the people who sponsored them back in the 1970s, they're on little plaques. It's great. With that, let's pray. (laughs) Holy Spirit, we already know that you're in this place, that you fill us as your temple, as a collective whole and as individuals. Continue to speak, move, and have your way among us. Open our heart and open our mind and open our body. If anyone's tense in this room, I just pray that we would loosen ourselves up to become ever-present to you as you seek after us. In Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said, amen. Amen. The first four chapters of Matthew set for us a narrative background for who Jesus is, where he came from, and Matthew shows us that Jesus is actually retelling, reliving, and fulfilling the whole story of Israel. The gospel, the story of Jesus, is the climax Mactic point of the story of Israel and the story of God. It is the turning point. This is the turning point of the narrative, of the story, which I find quite compelling and interesting because, as we have already noted, with John and soon with Jesus, that his primary campaign or teaching or slogan is repent or Turn around. At the climactic fulcrum of the story, Jesus says, turn around with me. Repent. And Matthew 4 finds us immediately after his baptism. The gap between chapter 2 and chapter 3 is 30 years, as we've already said before. Three decades. The gap between chapter 3 and chapter 4 is moments, minutes maybe. It just says then. 
The moment he has his baptism, it says then. He is escorted deeper into the wilderness by the Spirit for 40 days. Has anyone been in a wilderness setting for 40 days by yourself? Yep, didn't think so. Okay. Um, He is escorted for 40 days by himself into the wilderness of Judea, mirroring, as alluded to, the 40 years of the Israelite people in wilderness as they wandered around in circles. But Jesus isn't just reliving the story of Israel. He is also doing something else at the same time. He is recapitulating, which is a big theological word for reenacting the story of humanity at large. He is retelling the story of Israel, and he's also reliving the whole human story as well. The word wilderness in the Greek is eremos, and it means desolate, solitary, lonely, and an uncultivated place. I feel like my wife and I just moved into the eremos two years ago out into the the woods of southern Guilford County. Desolate, lonely place. It's uncultivated with wild beasts and animals. My hands are getting a little bit rougher as I live in the woods. I will say that. I've used a chainsaw a couple times. It is battery-powered, though. But I've cut some trees down. So the wilderness is this desolate, solitary, lonely, and uncultivated place. I find that to be intriguing. And what was the primary task of our primordial parents? It was to cultivate and extend a garden filled with beauty and goodness. But that doesn't happen. So they run from the task. I just want us to know that God doesn't kick them out God doesn't banish them. They actually run first. Have you ever noticed that in the story? God doesn't need to push us out when we're in sin. We run. That's the human predicament. They run to the trees. He doesn't. He comes looking for them, looking for repentance. Where are you? But they run. They don't cultivate. They don't extend the garden of goodness and beauty. So where do they find themselves? East of Eden a place of barrenness. If you read John Steinbeck's novel, you'll get a better picture of what East of Eden would look like. A place that has been the conceptual and metaphorical location of all humanity since Genesis chapter 3. Solitary, lonely, desolate, barren, uncultivated place. And a place, if we're honest, and we look around the world today, it seems as though we are still in that barren place. Glimpses of goodness and certainly plenty of brokenness. Philosopher and theologian Howard Thurman says, the story of man's struggle on the planet, haunting him as he builds his cultures, his civilizations, is to find his way back to the Garden of Eden. Humans were in a garden, 
and went into the desert. This is key. Look at the reversal that happens. Jesus goes into the desert to bring forth a garden. Humans begin in a garden, flourishing, peace, shalom. They enter into the desert barren wasteland east of Eden. Jesus goes into the desert to bring forth a garden. And spoiler alert, where does the resurrection happen? In a garden. In a garden. Notice the reversal. Humans reach to grab God-like status, and in so doing, they fall, trusting their own way of good and evil. And God empties himself and becomes human, and in so doing, he is resurrected. It's the great reversal. And it's the invitation for all of us. The way up is actually down. The way out of the waters is first and all the way in. Mildred Banks Winecoop says, dust with its characteristic of formlessness and tenuous particles stood for disintegration, disassociation, mourning, and death. The many in absolute distinction from the one. And the Judean wilderness is full of sand and dust representative of disintegration signified in the Genesis 3 and Lenten theme that we have come back to, from dust you came and to dust you will return. Yet, as the Logos, Jesus the Christ, the eternal Son of God and the divine organizer of all of life, the order of the cosmos enters into this wilderness as a human. He enters into the disintegration or the dust to reintegrate, to reharmonize, to reorder, to reconcile, and to bring atonement or oneness to all of creation. The one thing that we long for, I think, as humans is oneness. That's the nature of eros. We are seeking after wholeness and oneness because we are disintegrated individuals. But just as Adam and Eve, and just as Israel, he must be faced with a choice in the desert. So he is faced with what has classically been referred to as the three enemies of the soul, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Now, as I said, we're going to spend the next few weeks on the world, the flesh, the devil. Today, I'm going to fancy you with a talk on the devil. Does that sound good for all you visitors? Yeah, we won't see you ever again. (laughs) I really hope we do. The word devil in Greek is diabolos. Can you say that? Diabolos. And it is actually an adjective that means slanderer or accuser or liar. Jesus himself, in John chapter 8, calls the devil the father of lies. And when he speaks lies, Jesus says, he speaks his native language. His native tongue is one of lies. He's accusatory. He points the finger. 
Edwin Friedman, who was a family systems theorist, notes that in a chronically anxious society, do you know one of the primary marks? Blame displacement. Blame shifting. We become accusers. We become demonic. We slander and we lie. Satan, or Satan, is the Hebrew equivalent. And it is a noun or title of a personal being. Tracking? Not an energy, not just a force, personal being. The other word used in this story here is the word tempter. And it can mean to seduce. To seduce. So the devil is not, according to Jesus, a concept or a pre-scientific idea or made-up figure with horns and a pitchfork or a hockey team from New Jersey. Right? Or the blue guys down in Durham. (laughs) But rather, the devil or the Satan is a fallen, free, non-physical being whose primary aim, hear me, is not to beat you up with physical violence. This is not how he destroys. This is not how he kills. This is not how he does his work. Rather, he destroys by seeking to seduce your mind and heart with lies. Notice the encounter with Jesus. You ever, ever like totally thought about this moment and gone, man, it's a pretty casual conversation. They're just in dialogue. Ordinary conversation. How simple and ordinary this encounter is with the devil. It's not a battle in the octagon. It's a one-on-one. On a hike. But it's like a competitor whose only chance at winning a game is not through brute force, but getting into the head of the other team. The quintessential trash talker. And I'll be honest, I was a great trash talker in high school. Do you know, do you know what that really means? I wasn't that good. <laughs> I got to pull out all my tricks, man. All of them. But it's interesting, as, as a former you know, um, star athlete, in high school, uh, who averaged a robust uh, 4.9 points per game senior year. That's right. Come on. Come on. Um, Non-disciplined teams are always susceptible to mental lapses and breakdowns. If you aren't disciplined, you are susceptible to lies and mental breakdowns. This is why we are called into discipleship because the father of lies knows that those who aren't disciplined will cave in. It is important to note today that he does not make you or I do anything. Never, ever does he make you or I do anything. He simply seeks to manipulate 
through deceitful ideas. He cannot force you to do a thing. You have authority over him, power over him by way of the spirit of God because of the resurrection. He cannot do anything but manipulate you with ideas in your mind. He will get in your ear and begin whispering. The enemy doesn't shout. The enemy whispers. And he whispers into your ear and into your mind. This is why we must be transformed by the what? Renewing of the mind. But when these ideas are seated inside of us and we respond to them, evil is then produced. When we submit to the lie, when we act upon the lie with our free agency and choice and trust the lies as truth and they parade and mask around as goodness, When we do such a thing, evil is produced. Um, The psychiatrist M. Scott Peck, who wrote a national bestseller called The Road Less Travel, also wrote a book called The People of the Lie. He was one of the first ones in the 1970s, along with another, another psychiatrist named Carl Minniger, who wrote about sin and evil from a scientific and, and, and psychiatric perspective. Interestingly enough, he calls his book People of the Lie. He says this. He says, evil seeks to destroy truth because truth reveals its existence. The one thing that the enemy wants you to believe is that he's not real. Peck goes on in his book to provide a definition of evil, which I think is very helpful for us. And his basic conclusion is that evil is the mechanism that kills all life. Hence, the barrenness and uncultivated place of the wilderness. He clarifies by helping us consider how evil is spelled backwards. L-I-V-E. The antithesis of evil is life. I would encourage you to take a look at People of the Lie. What a phenomenal resource as we consider this concept of evil at a even a psychological or, or psychiatric level that splits the human heart. Evil doesn't split systems and structures. It splits the human heart. And the human heart infiltrates human structures and societies, civilizations, and it perpetuates itself. There's upward causality and downward causality but it splits the human heart because when we receive the lies, it plants seeds of evil inside of us that we need cleansing from. The enemy doesn't have to push you off of a roof if he can get you to believe that when you walk off, you will float in midair. How many of you have been there as a seven-year-old kid? You know, you just watched Peter Pan. Peter Pan needs to have some sort of warning ahead of it for parents. You know, I guarantee you, I guarantee there were some lawsuits at some point in history, you know, to Disney. My child fell off the roof because he watched your movie, right? Um, well, that's on you. <laughs> well, you're like, I think I can jump off of the roof and I think I can fly. The enemy doesn't have to push you off. He just has to get you to believe that you can float in thin air. 
He also doesn't have to kill you if he can get you to believe that his way of living actually produces joy, peace, happiness, and life. The enemy doesn't have to work that hard for us often. We self-destruct on our own, do we not? But notice his plan of attack with Jesus. Notice his strategy. You ever notice the enemy's strategy? He's a liar, obviously. What's his strategy? What's his approach? Where is his first and most central attempt at deception? With Jesus. It's his identity. His sense of value, dignity, and belonging. Verse 3, the tempter came to him and said, listen to these three words, these three powerful words from the enemy, the liar, the deceiver, the accuser. If you are, he is questioning Jesus' very essence and being, his ontology, his nature. If you are the Son of God, does he deny the fact of Jesus' identity as the Son of God? Certainly not. Does he deny the fact that you are a son or daughter of the king? Certainly not. He just wants you to question its validity. He questions its implications. In the garden, it was, did God really say? Here it's, if you are, He questions if it is true. And he does this twice in this story. Are you sure you trust him? That's the question of the enemy. Are you sure? Is he holding out on you? Is that who you really are? I don't know, man. You sure? You have that kind of value? Do you believe it? He says, if you are, in other words, perform for me your identity. Prove to me your value and worth. Prove your dignity. Prove your legitimacy. And at this statement, if you are, or prove your dignity, prove your legitimacy, in Jesus' humanity as fully God and fully man, let's remember, Jesus is fully human. He experiences every feeling and emotion and temptation that we all do. I think that Jesus more than likely had a visceral bodily, post-traumatic-like response at this statement of, if you are the Son of God. And do you know why? This, this just hit me the last like couple of weeks, like a ton of bricks. Do you know why he probably would have responded in such a way where his body is keeping the score, so to speak? Because he's been an illegitimate child his whole life. He 
He's been an illegitimate son his whole life. You're not really Joseph's son. You don't even know your dad. You're not legit. You don't even have a father, man. Just kids on a playground, age 11 or 12. So the enemy comes to him and says, if you are the son of God. He's been an illegitimate son his whole life. Questioning, I think, probably his identity for three decades, man. Where does the enemy go in your life? What wound does the enemy find himself at all of the time? What lie do you hear over and over again that you have come to believe is true? It's an important question for us to ask. And the enemy goes there. We have to know the enemy's strategy. He goes to that place. And the first thing that he wants us to do is prove ourselves to him. In the age of the digital world, what is much of our identity cultivation like? Proving ourselves to another. The like button is a button of legitimacy. St. Teresa of Avila says, for the most part, all our trials and disturbances come from our not understanding ourselves. But God, who's rich in mercy and so good, knew exactly the pattern and scheme of the enemy ahead of time. He knew, Yahweh knew he would go first toward Jesus's identity because that's been a wound his whole life. Given his human story, the most sensitive, tender, delicate, wounded, and painful dimension of his entire being, 90% of his life, he's been illegitimate. But the Father in heaven knew, so he planned his baptism before the test, not after the test. You ever wonder what would have happened if the baptism was supposed to be after the test? Jesus knew. Father knew. Jesus still had some sort of tension, but he knew something going into the wilderness. He had a concrete understanding. I'm not saying he didn't respond viscerally, that he didn't actually have emotions. He did. He felt. I believe it with everything but he has something to hold on to. The baptism came before the test, not after the test. In the last verse in chapter three, as Dr. D proclaimed last week, I wanna proclaim it again for us today to receive as a prophetic word. Matthew three seventeen, and a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. And in this one verse, 
before we enter into the waters of baptism this morning, I want to consider for us today, given the, I think, identity crises of our time, people are struggling, man. Confused, blurry, disordered, seeking. I want to consider four things in this one verse, four elements for how Jesus develops a rooted sense of identity. Can we do that briefly? I hope that it's transformative for you today. It's been transformative for me as I've prepared. The first thing that I want to note, just given this one verse, this one statement from God above, is that Jesus' identity comes from an external source. The text says a voice from heaven, not a voice inside. We live in what uh, the sociologist Philip Reef calls uh, the age of the therapeutic. There's a lot of philosophical conversation around this. We went from an age of authority to the age of the, the therapeutic or the age of authenticity. And there is this sense that you can find your true self if you go in far enough. The challenge with that is how do you know when you found it? Who's helping you along the way? And which version of yourself? Because we're all a mixed bag. You're a certain person at work. You're a certain person at home. You're a certain person in public. You're a certain person in private. Who are you really? It sends us on a chronic spiral. It sounds great. It sounds liberating. And honestly, every Disney movie that's coming out is this. Truly. You know, the problem, though, is, for one, yourself is not some sort of uh, immaterial part that's inside of you. That, that if you just broke yourself in half, it would just fall out. There it is. It's not how it works. There's an external source here. His identity is not self-created, performed, or conjured up, but it is received as a gift, as a gift. The second element for Jesus' sense of identity, and we could do a whole teaching on identity and uh, kind of a theory of personality, all the things. We're not going to do that. I just want to give you a couple of thoughts. I want to, but I'm not going to do that today. <laughs> the second element from this text is there's a sense of belonging. And here's a good therapeutic term, Attachment. The father says, this is my son. That is a possessive word. That's a word of belonging. A word of attachment. Howard Thurman says, one's personal stability. How many people do you know right now are not stable people? How many of you are not stable yourself in your sense of identity? <laughs> you laugh because you're like, I... I am so unstable, even right now in this space, unstable, right? We laugh because it's actually true. We live in an unstable and unstable society. He says, one's personal stability depends on his relationships with others. Some philosophers have come to the conclusion that if you live alone in the wilderness, that your humanity actually ceases to exist. You don't exist. 
He goes on, for in order to answer the question, who am I, the question of identity, the individual must go on to ask, to whom, to what do I belong? Now, contemporary neuroscience reveals that our attachments actually precede our identity. You don't come out of the womb with a sense of identity. In fact, a a young newborn or toddler doesn't even use the word me or mine until about 18 months. And my daughter now uses it all the time. (laughs) There's not even a sense of self in human development until about 18 months. But there's attachment. Our attachments precede our identity. Our attachments are also what drive our identity. And postmodernity asserts that the individual comes before relationships. But the biblical witness in this story, and for much of the non-Western world might have you, relationships actually precede the individual. I've said this before. Do you want want me to prove prove it to you? Look at your belly button. Relationships preceded you. There are relational dynamics while you're in the womb and you aren't even conscious or rational. Relationships precede the individual. You are in relationship before you even use the word I. This has all been confirmed through attachment theory, which has to do with the secure or insecure relational base that we have to ground us as we step out into this chaotic world. This is the nature of uh, Mary Ainsworth, John Bowlby, Alan Shore. Go read about attachment theory. Some of you do it at a popular level. I get it. And some of you are like, I just love talking about attachment styles and attachment filters. This is it in the scriptures, man. This is it. It provides for us a secure or insecure base to actually venture out into the world to experience a degree of challenge. It's not just about comfort. Keep in mind, attachment theory is about challenge and comfort. But we can come back to to feel safe and secure. The clinical psychologist Jim Wilder, who's someone I've come to really love, says the relational brain process that creates identity runs in the right brain at a speed faster than conscious thought. In other words, you can't even rationally and consciously define who you are logically. Your understanding of who you are precedes your rational conscious thought. Everything from attachment love through thinking together and creating character that's key, operates in this fast track. And our fast track identity is formed by, guess what? Who we love. Attachment love, he goes on to say, is the central and strongest force for developing identity in the human brain. Who or what are you attached to? And is it secure? If it is, then you have a secure sense of identity. If it is not, then you have an insecure sense of identity. And if our identity is that which grounds our sense of self, then a loving, stable, secure base other than ourselves is actually required. If identity has to do with grounding, we can't be grounded in ourself because we're fluid, we're moving, we're dynamic creatures. We have to be grounded in something that is rooted. Otherwise, if it's not, it becomes fragile, thin, and insecure. 
The problem with the modern notion of create your self-identity is it's actually deeply fragile and insecure and thin. The father doesn't just say in this text, hey, go be who you want to be. He actually states reality. And M. Scott Peck and people of the lie says that the devil is the spirit or evil is the spirit of unreality. The father states reality. This is my son. And he doesn't stop there. A lot of us have dads or moms. You are my daughter. You are my son. Okay, cool, but you're a jerk. But he says, whom I love. I remember hearing my dad growing up. He would talk about growing up in his home. He's like, I knew I was loved by my parents, but they never told me. They never told me. A lot of us need love to be shown. I think we all need that. But I think we also need to be told and looked at in the face, in the eyes, by our caregivers, by those we've attached ourselves to, and, and, and hear them say, I love you. I love you. I do this with Selah all the time now, and Judah. Judah doesn't talk back yet, but Selah does. And she's, I love you, Dada. And that makes me just go like oh, a whole nother level, man. Like I'm melting. It brings me delight and joy. I saw a Barbie commercial this week. <laughs> At the end of the commercial, it said, you can be anything. I thought, what an interesting string of words. Are things beings? The problem with being anything is that you actually lose your sense of being a human, a human person or your, your humanity. But it sounds great, man. I would buy a Barbie doll. You can be anything. No, no, you're not a thing, my friend. You're not an object. You're a person. A being who exists, who has emotions and feelings and desires and actions and behaviors and longings. You're not a thing. You can't be a thing. You're not an inanimate object. You're a person, a being. And what I love about this text is that the New American Standard actually says this. He says, this is my son. But specifically, the text says, my beloved son. Did you know that's a statement of being? That's a title of being. The father extends himself, attaches to the son, and loves him into being. Be loved means loved into being, not loved into thingness. Loved into being. And listen, friends, I think he is reaching out to you, attaching himself to you first. He's, he's extending himself. He's saying, I love you. You are my beloved. I want to love you into being, love you full, more fully into existence, more fully into your development, more fully into your becoming. You are more than a thing, you're a being, a person who's been brought into existence by the creator of the cosmos through persons throughout history. People brought you into being. 
And God brought those people into being. He wants to bring you into being loved as well. Your identity, friends, isn't created. It is given. You don't bring yourself into being. You are loved into being. Because what and who you are is a question of being. You are not an it. You are an are being. The African theologian John Mbitti says, I am because we are. And since we are, therefore, I am. The son is the son because of the father. And the father is the father because he has the son. Third element is that there's validation. Your identity, my identity needs validation. We present ourselves to the world for other people to go, yes, I see you. I see you. I love that it says, this is my son. In other words, the father is acknowledging and seeing what's happening and seeing his son. I'm validating him. He hasn't been validated his whole life. I'm sure Mary and Joseph tried, but even they knew it was tough. He sees Jesus and he sees and validates you in your being. You don't need any of this for validation. You don't need that job for validation. You don't need that relationship for validation. You don't need that money for validation. You don't need that car for validation. You don't need that outfit for validation. You don't need to act that way for validation. You are validated as you are because of who God is and says you are. You have inherent dignity because you are made according to the image and likeness of God. There is no other objective reason for human dignity other than that. That is at least defensible. That is where your validation comes from. And I want to proclaim over you today, you are validated. You are seen. But that scares us. Because we often don't want people to see. But the Father keeps, I think, coming after us as we hide in the bushes. And he says, where are you? I want to validate you. I want to validate you. And as we are deemed to be loved, as Henry Nouwen articulates, we become the beloved. When you are deemed a teacher, you become a teacher. When you are deemed a student, you've enrolled, now you become a student. Whatever your occupation is, when you've been deemed a nurse, you've gotten your thing, you become a nurse. When you're deemed as an artist, you become an artist, whatever, you know? Validation. The last thing, as I begin to wrap up, is that the father delights in the son. Father delights. He's well pleased. Well pleased. Brings so much joy. Dr. D said that last week, the phrase, that's my boy. I love that. Like a dad or a mom in the stands or at, at one of your shows or when you're doing a, you know, some sort of, a, I don't know, a little dance number when you're like three and it's actually terrible. <laughs> but your mom or your dad, that's my baby, you know? Right, graduation ceremonies. We talked about this before where you hear the air horn, nah, 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 right? That's my baby. You didn't believe they were gonna graduate. I know you didn't believe 
But now you're pumped, right? He delights in the Son, and he delights in you. And because Jesus had a secure attachment, a rooted and stable sense of who he most truly was. Keep in mind, we have a hierarchy of identities. The question is, who are you most truly? And is that stable and secure? Because he provides that rooted sense of who he truly is, Jesus was able to enter into the wilderness. And he, as Dr. D articulated last week in the wilderness, in this moment, I think, remembered his baptism. Reflected on what just happened. In his visceral response, his triggered nature, he reminded himself, I'm a beloved son with whom my father, my father is well pleased. And I haven't been able to say that my whole life. I just said, my father. I don't know what your relationship like with your father or your mother, either caregiver. But there's a ton of research around our, our attachments with our parents and how it impacts our attachment to God. And I don't know what you've gone through, but I want to just declare today that the Father in heaven, God above, looks at you and says, you are mine, and I love you, my beloved. In the Aramos, where we live in the wilderness, um, I've noticed the last couple of years that uh, daffodils pop up in our woods this time of year, randomly, just out of nowhere, daffodils. It's cute, it's sweet, you know, little yellow flowers in the woods. Um, but I've come, to, I've come to realize, considering that they are uh, perennials, I think, is that the language, perennials? Yeah, perennials, there we go, um, I'm learning. Um, they come back because they're rooted, they're grounded. Um, but I've, I've also come to realize that cut flowers are beautiful on a table, are beautiful on Valentine's Day, look pretty. But you know what cut flowers are? They're dead flowers. They're dying. Christmas trees, beautiful. But they're, they're dying. Because they're not grounded any longer. And we live in a cut flower civilization. We look pretty on a table, but we're dying. Because we're not grounded so we can't survive the wilderness that we live in. But God, I think, wants to be the ground and root of these individuals' identity and your identity today so you can have understanding of who you most truly are. And when the enemy seeks to deceive you with lies, you can look back at him with confidence and authority and power that Adam and Eve had in the garden that they didn't use and look back in his eyes and say, I am a beloved son or daughter of the king. Fluid, fragile, performative identities lack stability. But in baptism, God is attaching himself to you, providing a free, secure, and grounded sense of who you most truly are. A true understanding of what it means to be human. But, 
as Adrian von Kamm says, all authentic attachment implies detachment. To live one kind of life implies dying to another kind. So to that, you are not your performance. You are not your possessions or lack thereof. You are not your pleasures in a hedonistic society. You are not your desires. You are not your pleasures. You are not your popularity. You are not your worst moments, and you are not your best moments. God has extended his arms in agape love to declare this morning for you to hear and hopefully receive as a seed of new life that you are my dearly beloved. Let's pray.